Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Is the show back? No. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I should get that out of the way very early on. Uh, the show is not back at this stage. Hopefully at some stage. I think I'm coming around to the position that it's not over forever and it'll be back hopefully at some stage, but that stage is not quite yet, unfortunately. However, I do have two episodes that we recorded in front of a live audience at the Sydney Opera House in December last year. Uh, as part of the Just for Laughs Festival, and uh, I thought I would post those episodes uh, for you to have a listen to now. Uh, they have been sitting on the Patreon page for the Patreon subscribers for the last uh, few months, but I thought I might get them out here into the main feed. Why is that? Am I a selfless person who just wants to share these with the world? Sure, I'd love to say that that is the entire motivation, but the other motivation is I've got some shit to plug. You may know that I wrote a book. It's called I Am Not Fine, Thanks. It is still available in bookshops or signed copies are available at the gigs I am doing around the country. On Wednesday night, March the 15th, I'll be at the Brunswick Picture House doing my improvised show, What You're Talking About, Will. We added it at the last moment, so tickets will be available up until the night itself. So if you're in the local area and hearing this at the last moment and you think, I'd love to come down and have a look at that, uh, Wednesday night at the Brunswick Picture House. Then Friday, I am in Hobart doing my new show, Willuminate. I uh, haven't been to Hobart for a very long time, so if you're in Hobart and you would like to see my brand new show, you can see that on a Friday night. I would love to see you there. Some tickets still available, but you probably will have to be quick to get in for that one. Then after that, Canberra and Darwin. Um, I have not been to Darwin for way too long, so if you're in Darwin, I would love to see you at the show. And then after that, two weeks at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Those shows are already, they're about a month away as I record this, and they're already about half sold out. So uh, only doing 12 shows in Melbourne this year, not doing the entire run, just two weeks. So if you would like to see me at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, then uh, book a ticket. Getting quick. It's selling well. After that, Sydney Comedy Festival, Brisbane Comedy Festival. I'm coming to Townsville. I'm going to try to add some other dates because... Even though I've just been doing this show for a little while and still adding things to it at this stage, it's starting to be a lot of fun and I can't wait to show it to people all around the country. So that's the deal. That's what I did. I've, I've done my plugs. So hopefully you listen to the plugs. Hopefully you will come along to one of those shows. And in return, um, here is an episode of the podcast. Not a full episode, just an hour at the Sydney Opera House uh, with one of my favorite people and comedians in the world, Nish Kumar. Ah, uh, look, it's just more a chat than it is a philosophy episode, to be completely honest, and I would love to have Nish back for a proper episode, but as you can tell from this one-hour taste, uh, he is one of the most entertaining talkers in the world, and I hope you're really going to dig this. All right, it's uh, nice to be kind of back. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go away for a bit, but there will be hopefully a new episode again next week with Avidas as well, so... Um, because I still have things to plug. See? Ah, it's an amazing agreement that we've entered into here. I uh, really hope you're all doing well and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy. Uh, I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, and um, this is how the show starts. I actually fucked that up because I have not done this in a year. <laughs> That's not even how the show starts. Normally I say hello, and I'm going to do this again. It's the Opera House. Let's not embarrass me. 
Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So guest, who are you? I am Nish Kumar. <laughs> Hello, Nish. Thank you for coming to the Opera House to do this live version of the show. I super appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, Will. I am excited to be back for the comeback special. I know. I have not done this show in a year. I obviously didn't even remember how it fucking started. (laughs) You're like Elvis in 68. You should be in a full black jumpsuit for the comeback special. uh, You know what I am? Well, I'm in full black, but not in in a jumpsuit. But I am comfortable. It's it's weird to be doing this in front of an audience. It's not really like, you know, it's meant to be an intimate conversation. Yeah, right. Here we are in front of people who've come along to watch us together. But I'm so excited (laughs) that you are my guest for this because uh, we actually tried, I tried to get you as a guest on Willosophy. when I was in London many years ago. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't even remember. Was that about five or six years ago? Five or six years ago. Yeah. And I was doing some shows over there and I yeah. was going to get you to come and do the show. And I was very excited to have you as a guest. And then I basically had a nervous breakdown because I had not slept in about a week. I had the worst yeah. jet lag. And uh, the Soho Theatre where I was playing, they'd put me up in this like beautiful little apartment in the middle of town that they get the comedians yeah, to stay yeah. in. But somebody was renovating the flat next door. Oh, Jesus. So like when I would get to sleep suddenly there would be all this work that would start and so I just anyway I had a nervous breakdown and I couldn't get you to do the show so I'm very excited to have you here for it tonight um let's start uh I do ask the guests who they are you said what your name is but I I I always ask the guests to describe themselves a little bit if if somebody asks you who you are when you've said your name what do you say after that uh you know I guess I feel like I should have something more creative to say than simply my job title but I end up just saying, oh, I'm a... Actually, if I'm... In this context, I would say I'm a comedian and a writer and occasional television presenter. But I do find that when... um, If a stranger asks me, I will resist revealing that I'm a comedian because I don't really know what's going to happen after that. (laughs) What what normally do you think would happen? And when you say a stranger, do you mean like a cab driver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like somebody, like if somebody asks you what what you do, because like frequently I'm just in a city in the United Kingdom doing a show and like if somebody asks me, like what, what what do you you know cab drivers ask you what you do and you sort of talk around it because you don't want to get involved in a conversation about comedy and also I'm slightly embarrassed to reveal to people with real jobs that I'm a comedian and then t- uh, like three days ago I was in Melbourne and I was sat in this cafe and I was sat on a kind of shared table next to this guy and we started talking and he said what do you uh, what are you doing here and I was like oh I'm just I'm in town just uh, yep uh, and <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he it, it, we talked a, a bit, and he and I said, "Oh, what do you do?" And he said, "Oh, I'm a, an aerialist. Like I'm, a, I do acrobatics at altitude." And I went, "Oh, I'm a fucking comedian." <laughs> <laughs> Because suddenly I was like, oh, you're an, you don't have, and I was like, you don't have, and I said I didn't tell you what I did because I didn't want you, and, and I was, and he was like, yeah, I don't have a real job either. 
It was great. We had a really uh, nice conversation. Yeah, but I, I still think there's a difference between that and, say, the cab driver example. Because, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because, like, if you tell, like, a cab driver, an Uber driver, someone in that situation, yes, I'm a comedian, then there's got to be at least a part of you that thinks, oh, okay, I'm about to hear, like, a racist joke. Yeah, I'm get, right? yeah, yeah. But yeah. if you're an aerialist... <laughs> It's what's the, what's the banter that people go with if they meet an aerial? Yeah, I know. I, do, I mean, I I don't do you like heights. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very he was very nice. But it was very funny. Like I spoke to my girlfriend straight afterwards. She was like, "How's it going?" And I was like, uh, "Well, listen, I went straight into a cafe in a laneway and had a lovely conversation with an aerialist." Never change Melbourne. Yeah. Like that, it's that it could not be more typical of that particular city than having a flat white with an aerialist. So, can I ask you what you asked the aerialist? Because, like, if you run into an aerialist, what was the question? What, what were you curious about, about about that person's job? Well, I basically, what I wanted to know, also, he was performing at something called Sexpo. Mm. Right. Cut well, some Sexpo fans yeah. in. I mean, that's a very different type of aerialist. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise, like, he was working in the genre of sex swings. He's like, yeah. you've buried the lead a little he here, basically, I think. Basically, he was like, I'm doing a show at yeah. Sexpo, and I tried to be cool. Like, there's a thing, I guess you, it's just you hit a certain age, mm. and I want to be cool about sex, yeah. but I'm not. It's like when people tell me that, that uh, you know, this is my partner and we're in an open relationship, I'm like, oh, cool, cool, yeah. And, like, there's a part of you that's like, wow, no, no. You, you, like, I get really loud and high-pitched. I start going, no, that's re- actually very cool, I think. Because it's uh, there's, like, an inner, like, w- like uh, the whatever repression of me is. Like, I was having a conversation with my friend this afternoon, and I was like, you know, my therapist and I are working through various issues, and at some point we're going to get to sexual hang-ups mm. and when we get to that book it's going to be a big old dusty indiana jones book mm. <laughs> but well, one person who could help you with sexual hang-ups is an aerialist who works yeah. at sex bar i imagine <laughs> well the interesting thing is he was like i there's all sorts of like sex-based stuff there but i'm basically there and this is something that you and i are certainly familiar with if you go to uh, you know any of the art festivals here like Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, any of the big festivals that happen, there is just a subgenre of just dirty circus. And so he's like, I'm not really there for the sort of sex stuff. I'm there just in my capacity as a performer in dirty circus. There's a whole load of shows that are just like clowns with their knobs out. And it's like, if you do Edinburgh or Melbourne, you just become friends. I have looked into the splayed anus of so many clowns. Just in my years of attending arts festivals. Mm. Anyway, this man's name was Hilton, and he was a very, very sweet man, and he were, we had a very nice conversation, and we now follow each other on Instagram. But <laughs> it was a genuinely... But it was very funny, because he was like, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, like I, I'm just there to do some fun acrobatics, but there's some stuff happening at Sexpo. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I don't know where to jump in here, but I'm going to start with Sexpo, because it just felt like... Um, you mentioned sex. Would you ever go to something like that? Like, is that oh the sort? Would you ever find yourself in a place like you know where people are just walking around, exploring their sexual freedom, looking at sex it, products? I, I would only be there in some sort of capacity as the host of a television show because Louis Theroux had been struck down by a disease. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's literally the only way I'm there is if through some sort of accident I have ended up filling in for Louis Theroux. Like that's, it would just be me looking awkwardly into a camera like Tim or Jim from The Office. <laughs> um, talk to me about sex. Were you a, um, a, in your family when you were growing up, was sex something that was talked about? God, no! God, no! No, it wasn't. And also, growing up, England is really... I mean, this is a sentence that could apply to any number of things, but England is quite a weird place. And we sort of start... Certainly, I think it's probably better now, but certainly, like, in the 80s and 90s, they were very, like... You know, they were they, they started sex education actually relatively late. Uh, it, it, you know, it, when you, you you'd be like ten or eleven, but the problem with starting sex education at ten or eleven is that rumours have already begun to spread of the existence of sex, and the problem is that if you don't start with science very early, you the rumours will get out of hand. And a group of people will be describing a condom as effectively a belt with a pouch that holds your penis at the front of it, like a chastity chain that you then apparently rub on someone's groin, and that is sex. And then uh, that rumour will lead to a certain people seeing a used condom in Lloyd Park, uh, kicking it, and then being told that their shoe has AIDS. So this... this <laughs> it, like, it, it, it's really important that you start educating children about sex quite early because otherwise very strange rumours will spread. Yeah, and when Nish says you, he means like people who are appropriately related to the children. Don't just <laughs> take it upon yourself, I need to point out. You know, well, Nish Kumar said that driving past primary schools just trying to explain things to children. No, thank yeah. you. I, like, my, we didn't really talk about sex much uh, at, at home. And I do think my parents, and I do sympathise with my parents because I think their perspective was very much, this is what we were hoping to outsource to the public education system. And I think they were right to think that. Like, no one wants to explain sex to a child, but it, it, it's still like, you know, I think I think they, they thought the school system would do better. And I do think, you know, there is this, there are various studies that prove that there's a correlation between sex education happening quite early and lower rates of sexually transmitted diseases in teenagers and teenage pregnancies. And so, it, but in England, it sort of felt a bit like, it all felt like a bit weird and repressed. I was, I was having a conversation with my mother about the Me Too movement, which, like, it, it wasn't a difficult conversation. Like, she was like, I mean, it was kind of a difficult conversation because she was like, string them up. And I was like, I don't think you could do that. Like, I'm very much in favour of uh, the way that the Me Too movement has happened and would like it to go further, but I don't think we can string people up yet. And occasionally my mum was just like, you know what? My mum just like, she started laughing to herself. And I was like, why are you laughing? And she was like, in a way, I'm quite glad we made you two afraid of sex. <laughs> <laughs> Referring to me and my brother. <laughs> well, I, okay, so I, again, I didn't know this conversation was going to start with sex and we can get off it as soon as we need to. But um, how much... Was it fascinating to you? Did you go to a co-educational school? Like, what was high school like? Were you at a, a boys' school or a co-educational... Like, was I, it boys was and girls? A, I was at a boys' school until I was 16, mm. and then they let girls into the sixth form. And I... Yeah, mm. and that... 
that doesn't, doesn't really seem like the right way to do it. Murmur of consternation yeah. was exclusively female. Yeah. Because that is a group of women who are like, the last thing I would ever fucking want to do in my life is be released into a school that had previously been filled with only 16 and 15-year-old boys. Um, but it, um, I, in retrospect, and again, I know there's a lot of studies about... Um, negatively mixed education can sometimes have negative results for people like exam results and stuff but I do think it's really important that you educate girls and boys together at all times because I do think it is weird it's a weird and arbitrary thing why would you why would you do that like now that I think about it at the time people are like exam x study shows this x study shows that and you're like but in retrospect you're like but why would you do that you know, I don't really know what the... It, surely it is just... Like, integration is always societally advantageous. Whatever version it takes, you know? It's always good to know lots of people from lots of different communities. And, like, certainly in the United Kingdom, we're seeing the sort of negative impact of our government being exclusively run by a group of people that were educated in very exclusive uh, fee-paying schools that were often single-sex and certainly not, like, particularly friendly to uh, um, members of the LGBTQIA community. And that isolation breeds a certain type of person that doesn't... It, do, it doesn't encourage empathy in a person, I think, in retrospect, you know? Um, anyway, sex. <laughs> Sorry, like I said, I didn't actually mean us to go there, but it was an interesting question. I wanted to ask you, um, obviously the premise of this podcast is I ask people if they have a life philosophy of any kind. It can yeah. be to life overall, but it could be to, to work, to love, to anything, yeah. really. Do you, do you have one? I, do, I'm trying to, I was trying to think if there's like one piece of philosophy that has carried me through my entire life. And sometimes I like... It, I feel like my decision-making has always been quite chaotic, mm. you know? But I think I, I think the only thing that I... I don't know, the only two things that I think about are, like, just try where possible to be kind and try and work out a system where you don't resent your day. Like, where possible. And that's the thing that I always really... That's the thing, certainly, that has led me into the career that I'm in, is that I, I never wanted to get up in the morning and resent my life, you know? And you sort of, um, you don't, you know, you don't want to end up like the bloke in Once in a Lifetime, the Talking Head song. Like, I think from a very early age, I was like, it's, you know, this is a, a very precious thing to be given. Like, to be alive is a sort of, you're fortunate. Um, and so you shouldn't waste it, resent, like, I just, I hate being bored and I hate feeling like I'm doing something that I, I didn't want to be doing or that I've been forced into being doing. So like, I guess if there's like two philosophies, it's like kindness and don't resent your own life. It's interesting to me uh, what you say about uh, the job you chose. I thought you were going to finish that sentence as that's why I became a comedian because I didn't want to get up in the morning. <laughs> Well, that, that's also a massive part of it. If I'm being honest, a huge part of why I'm a comedian is so I can go to the cinema in the daytime. 
Like, that's a huge part of why I'm a comedian. Like, a huge part of what I like to do is go to the cinema when it's empty at about midday. That's what my dream. Actually, I went to see a film at, like, 7pm on a Friday recently. It's like, what the fuck is this? This is appalling! All these people sat close to me? This is intolerable! So, uh, yeah, okay, so tell me about the lifestyle of a comedian versus the philosophy of why you want to be a comedian. So there's got to be two. So there's, like, one can be I want to go to the cinema during the day, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. But, but what's the bigger one? What's the philosophy behind wanting to be a comedian? What do you think that is about? What part of niche made you want to say, I want to, like, stand in front of people, I want to tell them about my life, I want to tell them about my perspective on my life and my perspective on the world. Where does that come from? What's that philosophy? I think that that is a very easy question for me to answer because I can point to about a few very specific things that happened in my life. When I was four years old, I've got a rogue uncle. Uh, He's ten years younger. He actually lives here. Uh, He he lives in Sydney. Um, And he... um, He's 10 years younger than my mum. And it's always good to have, like, a rogue... That's him texting right now. <laughs> he's te- he said, don't describe me as a rogue uncle. <laughs> he, it's always good to have, like, an older relative. And I, 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 had a, I, I, I think I probably had a rogue uncle and a rogue cousin um, who are both uh, older than me but not... Uh, hugely older than me right and so uh, when I was about four years old he bought me and my cousin a VHS of the Simpsons and I think that like if you see something like the Simpsons at a point where your brain is still wiring itself it's going to put some interesting (laughs) systems in place and so like for me that was like I, I, you know, I, I don't know a time where that wasn't in my life. So I, I used to watch The Simpsons constantly, and like we'd like the day the Simpsons. So the Simpsons used to be on Sky, and we didn't have Sky. And then, and I, and I used to go to my friend Matt's house every Friday, and we would watch The Simpsons and play Nintendo sixty four. And like it, that was my, basically what I did uh, with my Friday nights. And then the day The Simpsons. I don't know if I've ever talked about this before. The day The Simpsons came out on free to on BBC the day the BBC bought the Simpsons I stayed indoors all day why just in case I was way late (laughs) I stayed indoors all day drawing the Simpsons now I cannot draw so the drawings of the Simpsons would have looked like them if they'd all been badly injured in a fire And I stayed, and they had like a whole night's program, like the history of the show. And I VHS recorded it, and I like, and I, I just would watch the the episodes over and over again. And I bought the book, and I like in 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 retrospect, you kind of look back on it, and it's like clearly what I was trying to do was I was like, I love what this is. How do I open? They're like, I don't know, I can't drive, so I'm about to embark on an automobile-based metaphor. Yes, please do. I, I, I'm a, how do I crack the chassis of this? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to understand how yeah. it worked. And I had like a book 
the everyone's favorite guy to our uh, the ultimate guy to our favorite family and it would break it would have the episode breakdown and it would have all the references that it was, and so it's like I, I i think in retrospect i was like i it wasn't just that i liked it i wanted to know how i could do it and then when i was um, 11 years old maybe 12 years old the bbc started airing a sketch show called goodness gracious me which was an all british asian sketch show and that's the thing where you're like and so then that's where my rogue cousin comes into play because she got us all tickets to go and see the live show at the hackney empire and it was the first time i'd ever seen live comedy and i think probably the light bulb moment of like oh i love comedy and they look like me and they're doing comedy and suddenly, if you if that hits you, and I and I I eventually went on to work for them and write for Sanjeev and Mira, and I met Nina and Corvinda, who are the four people that were in the cast. And once Sanjeev said to me, I was always amazed that it didn't immediately because it was a massive show, right, in the UK. It was a big comedy show. It crossed a lot of boundaries, but it also was this huge like moment for the British Asian community, right? Because it wasn't just the the premise, the title of the show, "Goodness Gracious Me," comes. From from a song that Peter Sellers used to sing when he used to do his regrettable Indian character. <laughs> Absolutely suboptimal. He has fake tanned up and his head is wobbling all over the place. And so he used to sing a song where he was like playing this like Indian man and he'd go, my heart goes goodness gracious me. Boom, buddy, boom, buddy, boom, buddy, boom. And he would do that. That Nitin Sawney's a great uh, British Asian musician, went to university with Sanjeev Bhaskar, and Nitin Sawney took that song and started playing it on Indian instruments, and they called the show Goodness Gracious Me. And that is like, that's to, to like us, that's never mind the bollocks. Like, that's the fucking Sex Pistols. That's, that, that was him t- saying, you have portrayed us in this way, we are now going to take control of the way that we are portrayed. And it was a show that openly mocked white people. And I, I just never seen that before. You know, the, one of the most famous sketches from the show is in the first episode. And there was this period of time where the thing to do on a Friday night would be for loutish British people to get shit-faced and go for a curry. And they reversed... You know, it's a very, it's a, sim, it's a beautifully simple reversal technique where they have a bunch of Indians going for an English. And like one of the most famous, and because like part of going for an Indian was to be dick swinging yeah. about it and give me something that was really, really hot. And one of the famous lines from the, that sketch is, what's the blandest thing on the menu? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like this is fucking rewiring my brain you know and when i went to see them live i just thought it was the best thing i'd ever seen how uh, old are you when this is happening uh 11 to 13 the the tour was in uh 1998 i, I it's either 98 or 99 so i'm either 13 or 14 and, okay so you're 13 or 14 years old like you you understand that this is something that like appeals to you comedically but also appeals to you culturally yeah. like it's you know, yeah. it's opening your brain in a way that you're saying oh this is talking about my experience but it's not just talking about my experience it's empowering yeah, my that's experience right. that was right? the thing it wasn't um it 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 didn't sort of um it didn't bow its head or genuflect. It, you know, the show walked into a room with its head held high and said, this is who we are. And it, uh, it, it fucking changed my life. You now, know? And when, said, when you say it changed your life, though, I'm interested, and maybe you won't be able to recognise this or not, but I, I'd like to ask the question regardless, is was there any part of you while you were watching that 
that was thinking not only this is something that I love, but also as a 13 or 14 year old, was there some part of your brain that said, this is something that I could do? Yeah, I think there was a part of, no, there wasn't a part of my brain that thought this is something I could do. There's a part of my brain that thought this is what I want to do. Like it wasn't necessarily that I thought I was able to do it, but it just, it, the, the, the opportunity had presented itself. And then at some point I saw Bigger and Blacker, which is Chris Rock's, I think it's his third HBO special. And uh, it opens with a routine about the Columbine massacre, which at the time, you know, was this huge, jarring piece of news. It's an awful uh, secondary school massacre in America. And he opened with a routine about that. And that was the start of the show. And, you, you know, suddenly you go, oh, wow, you can really talk about anything. You can, you, you, it, you know, this feels exciting to me. And then I also saw a stand-up called Ross Noble, uh, who is massive here. Ross, I don't know why I'm saying like he, yeah. he fucking lives here half the time, yeah. I think. He does. This is the one place where you don't have to say a stand-up yeah, yeah, called yeah, 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 Ross yeah. Noble. Next you'll be like, and there was this guy, Arj Barker, I think his name was. <laughs> <laughs> So Ross Noble, there's an English panel show called Have I Got News For You, which is like news-based jokes. And I, I liked it and I liked the idea of like doing comedy about the news or something that always appealed to me. But then Ross would be on the show and he'd sort of just be, he'd, everyone would sit in the chair and lean forward and try and deliver their jokes. And he would sort of lean back in his chair. And sometimes I see myself on British panel shows and I go, you're fucking sitting like Ross Noble. Because that is, but he, his whole thing was just like, he, he, there was something about him that he was weird and whimsical, but there was something about him that you're like, that's the coolest man in the room. And then I went to see, there was a period where I had a very enterprising teacher at school who found out that there was some bung, that like if you went to a, a state school, what, like a public school, I think you call it here, like it, we, we, a non-fee paying school, the government would give you cheap t- theatre tickets. So we, I used to go and see like, I saw Glenn Close to a streetcar named Desire for like three pounds. Like it was like, we would just go and see all this like wild <laughs> plays and it was fucking great and then in between that I went to see Ross Noble at the West End and so I was watching people do The Tempest and it's like Shakespeare and it's serious and then like two weeks later I was sat in the same room and this like guy from Newcastle was being a dick <laughs> and that again is like there's something about there's something about that that felt um, uh, subversive in a way that I thought was, was, was great and I think certainly by the time I was like 18 or 19. I was like immersed in stand-up comedy and I was like really trying to f- like trying to figure out how I would start doing it. But it was I you know I was buying comedy albums. I was you know like I was watching like Richard Pryor and you know I was I was I was in it. Do you have a comedy philosophy? And when I ask you that, I mean when you sit down to write a show or you know create a new piece of work, is there Something that guides you as a principle of what you want that work to be? I mean, I think a lot of the time with the stuff that I do, there's a lot, there's an extent to which I just, I, I like, I'm constant, there's constantly things going on in my head. Like I'm constantly churning through it. And about, 
uh, nine years ago, no, 2014, I came to Melbourne Comedy Festival with a show that I'd done in Edinburgh in 2013. And that was the year where I thought, this show is going to be about something. I'm going to write a show about something. And it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it wasn't shit. But it was like, it just didn't work. And one of the things I realised was like, you know, don't, like... Uh, the next year I was like I'm not going to write it about anything so then I started trying to just do stand up and talk about things that I was interested in and then in re- and then once you have the hour retrospectively go okay what is this about what is the connective tissue here and I sort of realized something and it's an awful thing to say because it's quoting a mass murderer from a novel written by someone with absolutely unacceptable views but in We Need to Talk About Kevin, there is, a, <laughs> there is a bit in it where Kevin is talking and his parents, his parents are talking about Kevin and Kevin comes in and he says, I can't believe you said that. And his mother says, you missed the context. And he says, it's me. I'm the context. Now, Lionel Shriver is a piece of shit. Kevin, not a good character. But it's me. I'm the context is the thing that unlocked stand up for me because suddenly I, I realised like I don't have to worry too much about connecting anything it's the co- the context is me and my opinions and my personality and so that then shifted that sort of shifted everything and like one of the reasons why I was trying to figure out why it is that Melbourne is such a like significant city to me because I've only done the festival twice but it feels like something that's very close to my heart and I realised it's because like I had like a breakthrough in Melbourne about what I did on stage through doing something that was, to be fair, shit. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense to me, though, because, I, I, I mean, you know, any time somebody tells you there's two types of anything, that, that of course, yeah. it's absolutely wrong. Like, yeah. you know, it's always a false binary. But in comedy, there does seem to be, you know, false binaries aside, this idea that there are comedians who are relatable, you know, yeah. comedians who have that, you know, we all do this, we all yeah. do that. And, you know, I grew up watching these people going, that's amazing the way that you can get everybody to laugh at this thing that you all do. But every time that comedian would say, I, you know, we all do this, I'd be like, yeah. I don't do that. And, <laughs> and if I told people what I did with my day, they'd be like, no, we don't do that. You're, you're weird. <laughs> and then there's this other sort of comedian where their comedy is, here's my view of the world, here's yes. who I am. And some of you can come and laugh because you relate to some of what I'm saying. And some of you are going to come and laugh at me because you think it's funny that I am telling you these stories because it is very unlike your life. And I mean this in the nicest possible way. I think I'm that sort of comedian yeah. and I think you're definitely that sort of comedian as well. Is that fair? I, I couldn't agree more with that, yeah. I, I've always felt that like a comedian like Jerry Seinfeld or Michael McIntyre is a heartbeat away from becoming a world leader mm. because I think the, the thing that <laughs> I think the thing that Seinfeld and McIntyre have in common with presidents and prime ministers and with politicians specifically mm. is the ability to stand in a room and mm. capture the zeitgeist of the room and like speak to the majority of people at any given time and I, I really do think that that there's like a weird overlap in that style of comedy. And again, like, what's better than watching Jerry Seinfeld? Like, in comedy, like, it's fucking great. Like, I love that stuff. But I, 
would be as capable of doing that show as I would be of doing a Mitch Hedberg show of uh, surreal one-liners. Like, I can't do either of those things. And it's so funny that I love Ross so much because I could not do what Ross does. Like, these kind of flights of fancy, I just wouldn't be able to do them. But I definitely think that the, the, you can be a type of comedian that comes on stage and says, this is my worldview and this is what I think about things. And I hope you either agree or at least find it funny enough that your disagreement is irrelevant. I mean, we have a real-life example of what you're saying now, don't we, in Zelensky in Ukraine. Yeah. In that he was, for people, I'm sure people know this, but he was a comedian. Yeah. Who played the you know president of Ukraine on a it, television it's show? Unbelievable, and was so convincing in the role they made him the president <laughs> of Ukraine. It's like, an extraordinary, <laughs> it's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing, and it, it was very funny because when when if, when the Russian invasion started, some people online, a couple of journalists, tried to contextualise it for a British audience by saying this is like what would happen if Nish Kumar was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And I have to say, I was very quick to say, it's fucking not. Because <laughs> if I was Prime Minister and Putin invaded, I'd be gone faster than you could say, where's the Prime Minister? <laughs> I'd be fucking gone. It'd be like when a cartoon character leaves, there'd just be an out pencil outline of me in dust. And I'd just be, bang, out of there. This guy is like <laughs> staying in Kiev and he's like, I'm going to fight and die for my country if necessary that's not me <laughs> that's a considerably braver person than i will ever be i mean literally you had a bread roll thrown at you and wrote a whole show about it <laughs> that's so absolutely true yeah. absolutely true i uh, the show that i literally just finished touring yesterday in this room uh, was about me having a bread roll thrown near me at a charity no, event. Didn't, didn't hit you, but you got 50 minutes of material out of it. Didn't hit me. 50 minutes. That's the edited version. <laughs> I, I am interested in that, though, because the show's incredible. Uh, for, uh, I'm sad that people missed it, but um, uh, I know that you have taped it and yeah, recorded it. It, it will so, emerge at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, also, I have a bootleg if anybody needs to hear it. I wasn't able to make it last night and I rang a friend who I knew was at the show and I said, can you just give me some of the highlights of the show? I'd love to talk to Nish about it. And he goes, I can do you one better. <laughs> I, and the thing is, I know instinctively I'm supposed to go, oh, that's not correct that he did that, but I'm very excited because being bootlegged mm. makes me feel like Bob Dylan or something. Like... <laughs> It's the most exciting thing that could have happened to me. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible show, but it, it Thanks, does man. make me think about, I mean, so many punchlines, just in, like, you know, everything is a joke in this show, but it is around an incident that, you know, not just something that might have been provoked by racism, but the fallout of that through the media and the press and the way that, yeah. you know, it certainly became about race and racism and persecution regardless of what the initial incident was about, the, the fallout of it, you know, and the way that it was manipulated in the media. Yeah, And you right. became, you know, somebody who became a symbol of something that really, you know, the media used to rally people against you. Yeah. Um, in a very scary way, including death threats. Yeah. Uh, one that you hilariously, you know, read out actually in the show. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that idea of using something that, 
you know, comedians do this a lot. I, 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 I got unfairly arrested on a, a plane and wrote an entire yeah, yeah. show about it. Like, and sometimes I wonder if, like, that's a healthy way for me to be dealing with a trauma that I went through. <laughs> you know, is it, like, I mean, as a comedian, do you think, well, yeah, when you are, you know, when something bad like that happens, there's going to be a part of you that thinks this will make great material and it made great material for this show and then there's another part of you that says, I'm a human being who's been through something traumatic and am I dealing with this in the right way? Can you talk to me about how you think about both of those things? Yeah, I can sort of, yeah, and I think it's like the, the thing that happened, so just to summarise, it was a charity event, the audience was not happy with my political views that I expressed on stage. Someone threw a bread roll at me. And the thing that I made clear in the show is, like, that the day itself was quite funny. But then it got filmed and picked up by sections of the conservative press. I'm already something of a lightning rod in the UK because I hosted a show on the BBC that was perceived to have a left-wing political bias. And so... And I'm also an opinionated man of colour, which is obviously not something that people are particularly... Certain people are particularly keen on. But... So and then there was this kind of twenty four hour period where I was like in the press getting death threats, and so the show is really about how like I don't really have a problem with the audience, but it's the fallout that was the issue, and so that happened in December two thousand and nineteen. I had about three gigs in January of two thousand and nineteen, and I was just like, I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm a comedian, and I'm going to talk about it. And I still have the recordings of those gigs, and some of the jokes are still in the show. Like that, I then picked up. You know, after the pandemic you're like what, what the fuck am I going to do a stand-up show about and then you start picking at it and then I but there's a point where I tell jokes and then I start talking about the and I'm like and then there's some death threats and then I, I can't do it I can't fucking talk about it like and you can hear when and I now can hear that this is like somebody I, I basically developed PTSD because of the like death threats and the attention and that's like that's somebody who doesn't know that their brain is not functioning properly. And it's funny because people are like, is comedy like therapy? And you're like, no, therapy is like therapy. (laughs) And in a weird way, I'm only able to do the show as it is now because I then started seeing a therapist who I then like, and she says lots of very interesting things to me, but one of the things she said to me that I think is so interesting and so applicable when people talk about uh, comedy as an act of therapy she said the what what you do is what it's great because you can express yourself and also it's nice because it's good for people to talk about mental health so that the audience doesn't feel so alienated but if you are not doing the therapy work if you're not doing the work behind those scenes you are reliving your own trauma again and again and again and you are putting yourself if you haven't processed that incident separately in the company of a medical professional, you are actually doing more damage. And I sort of, you know, like, I, I, it makes me think about, like, you know, like, some like, someone like Richard Pryor, who, you know, was putting himself through a lot, with, but without an infrastructure to support him. And it's, it makes you realise that this, like, idea of, like, you know, the sort of kind of sad clown there is, like, actually a therapeutic reason for it. Like, not only without therapy, not only is comedy not therapy, it could actually be something that makes 
what you're going through worse and worse and worse. And I think about that, you know, I think about that a lot. And occasionally when I'm talking to friends of mine who in whatever artistic thing, they're going to like write a book about something that's terrible that happened to them, or they're going to like write a TV show, they're going to write stand up about it. I'm always like, make sure you've dealt with the thing. Because if you haven't dealt with the thing, you're just putting yourself through hell for no real reason, right? And it can really like, it can, it can take an unnecessary toll on you as a person. Uh, yeah, I was, I was very interested in that when I was listening to the show because, uh, I mean, obviously we have a great example in Australia of somebody who, you know, Hannah Gadsby, who did, did yeah. a show, Nanette, and, you know, obviously, you know, I think despite the fact that she had, you know, dealt with a lot of what she was speaking about because so much of it was so intense that yeah. every night when she went out on stage she still had to, you know, to do the show properly, she still yeah, had yeah. to relive some of it. Yeah. How much of it did you need to relive on stage to be able to do the show? I mean, for me, it was. I I I I put it I put it at a distance. I think also it really helped that like by the time I came round to doing it, it was a couple of years onwards. You know, like I, I when you start doing a show like this, and I first started doing this material as it is in this form in like the summer of 2021. And really all I was thinking was, cause I had fuck all else. I basically had 15 minutes of stuff about the pandemic. And then at the time about 35 to 40 minutes about this incident. And it was one of those things where you're like, I'm genuinely concerned. They're either only going to want to hear about the pandemic or they're not going to want to hear about the pandemic. And either way, a chunk of this is going to really stink the fucking room out. <laughs> But actually, it was it was fine. It was great. But I think I benefited from being having a sort of remove from it. But like what Hannah did with that show was, you know, was kind of incredible. And because I think it's so there's so much control in it, and that's the thing that I think is extraordinary. There, it's like control, tension, and release. And she's in such command of what's going on and I imagine it must have been really grueling to do every night and she did she did that show a lot but like I'm always the thing that I'm always in awe of of it as like almost feels like it almost feels trite to talk about the like technical side of a show like Nanette but I do think it's really important to acknowledge like there is a lot of skill that went into building that show. And there's a lot of skill in executing that show. The first half of that show is fucking funny. It's fucking funny. There's loads of jokes in it. And, but when you know that there's a turn is coming, it's almost more interesting. I think that's why, I mean, listen, this, I'm not blowing anyone's mind here. Guys, Nanette is good. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of Nanette in Australia as we sit in the building where the special was recorded. Uh, yeah. In a much smaller room yeah. than she recorded. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was one of those things where you sort of, you go, it, is, it, it, report, it rewards repeat viewings because when you know what the second half is going to be like, the first half almost feels even more uh, even more extraordinary. I'm but, interested in how many times you did. So I think you mentioned in the show last night that you'd done it 80-something yeah, times. something like that, yeah. Uh, is, do you think there is a, a right amount to do a show like for you? Like, you know, is there a right amount to get the show, you know, how you want to do the show without, like, you know... I mean, I don't know. I'm just interested in, in I, knowing if you have a perspective on the that. The thing that, like... The, the thing that freaked me out about doing this show was that I hadn't done a full Edinburgh. Normally I've done a full Edinburgh. Um, and that's, you know... In previous, in previous years, that involves, like, doing 25 previews. 
and and then doing 25 time doing the show 25 times and then taking that on tour and even the last time I did a tour in 2018 and 19 I did a full month of like work in progress shows in Edinburgh so I, like you charge a fiver in and you say it's not gonna be finished but come anyway it'll be fun and so I did that but with this one I was quite nervous about how I was putting it together and I sort of tried because of my experience of like doing a show that I thought was about something I actually tried to like not I tried to, like, split up the story. I tried to, like, sort of have, like, a bit of the show, then the story, and then a bit of the show. And I did Mike Babiglia's podcast. And Mike Babiglia's a great American comedian. He does these, like... He does these American stand-up shows that are actually kind of, like festival shows like what we would think of in Melbourne and Edinburgh as being festival shows they, they have to have a theme a spine sometimes they have a narrative to them and I and we his podcast is like people talking about what material that they're working out and I talked a little bit about the spread roll story and I said I'm thinking of and he was like we've well, just got to make that the whole show and I was like yeah I don't think I really that's not the kind of comic I am and he's like yeah yeah you you will <laughs> he, he, he was so dismissive yeah. of the idea and so then at a certain point I gave up on the idea of trying to fight the fact that this show is just the story and then everything else and then as soon as I gave up that fight the whole thing just fell into place and you, sometimes y you you have to trust you have to trust the rhythm of the thing like y y a lot of the problems that happen once you have like an hour or an hour ten of funny material, the problem that you have is you fight, you fight against the thing. The thing makes itself what it wants to be. And there's a certain extent to which you have to get out of the way of that process. And your meddling is actually not helpful. And like, so with this show, it was like, it's about the fucking bread roll. So just wedge the other shit in the middle of it. And then as soon as I did that, it was like, oh yeah, this works. And it's... It can be frustrating sometimes because you go, I thought I'd learned this lesson by now. But uh, no, it, that, I think that's the fun thing about stand-up is that like you constantly, it's never easy. Okay, so talk to me about that because uh, like I'm very aware that we're on limited time here and I like would love to talk to you for hours and you, we're the, you're the sort of person I really could talk to for hours. But I, I, want, I want you to talk just a little bit briefly about that idea of like what is stand-up to you? Like what do you get out of it? Like what is what are you looking for? What are you trying to work out about, you know, stand-up comedy? What, what, what role does it play in your life now other than it just being your job? Like Yeah. Oh, man, like... I, this is going to sound... I don't know what this is going to sound like. <laughs> the first time I did stand-up comedy... Like, I'd done, like, bits of things where I was like, this will surprise literally no one, but I was a captain of my school's debating team. Mm. <laughs> and the first time I told James Acaster, the British comedian and thin white man, uh, <laughs> that I was um, a, this captain of the school's debating team, he just went, yep. That makes sense of it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so that that was... I basically, like, wrote funny debating speeches, and that's basically the fucking comedy I do now. Uh, but the first time I did a stand-up gig, and I'd done bits of sketch comedy and really loved it and was really excited, but the first time I did stand-up, I was like, I think this might be what my brain is for. Like, I think this might be the thing that I the wiring of my brain is designed to do this thing because it's, I just, it, when I do stand up, I don't buy into this idea of stand up therapy, definitely not now. And it, 
go to therapy. But the one thing I would say about stand-up is like, I love, like, it's the most, it's the time where I'm just focused on the thing that I'm doing and my brain is not distracted by anything and it is, I, I'm like completely, the only focus is on the thing that I'm saying at that exact time. And it shuts off a lot of the other bits of dissenting voices in my brain when I'm actually doing it. Um, and so for me, it's like, I really, it felt like sort of, it felt like coming home the first time I did it. Do you feel like you're good at it? I feel like... like I, but, yeah, loaded question. No, no, no. no. Like, I, I, think you're, <laughs> I think you're great at it, like, but I would like to know whether you think you're good at it. I feel like I'm not as good as I would like to be at it. And I, what I, as I, I'm 37 now, which is sort of neither old nor young, but as, as I, this, at this point, I think one of the things that I've realised is I don't think I'm ever going to be as good as I want to be at it. And I think actually that's okay. And that's sort of the thing that will make me keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Because actually, you know... When you say that is okay, do you really mean that that's okay? Or is that... No, I think that's the thing. I think think I've realised that actually, like, the sort of pursuit of it is what keeps you going through it. I think if I thought that I... If I thought I'd done something, even like... Uh, like if I thought I'd done something as like complete and perfect as any Richard Pryor album, I would stop. Like I genuinely think that that would, you'd go, why would, why would that, why would that? I saw Maria Bamford in Montreal uh, in 2016 and it was just, it, it was just perfect. It was perfect. Every single routine was perfect. And she is the closest comedian to Richard Pryor, I think, because she's the, she's able to embody characters in the way that he was able to embody characters. And it means that every one of her routines is a dialogue between the five different people in the story. She's not telling you this person said this to anything. She becomes that person and says, and that's the thing that technically she has in common with Pryor is that they are immersive storytellers. They're not uh, objective third parties. They start the story and then they become the story. And th- that, on a technical level, that's why I think she's the comedian most similar to Pryor. And I just thought, I saw her and I just thought it was, it was perfect. And it was, you know, as good as, you know, there are, ty- you know, there are times when you watch like her or when you watch A Castor or when you watch Daniel Kitson, you sort of think this is almost as good as it can be. And I think if I did something and I was like, that is as good as it can be, I would go, I don't need to do it anymore. But as it is, you're like, oh, I think I have got some stuff to learn. And like, it's just this show, I think every time I finish a show, I think that's the best show I've done. And that's really all you can hope for. But after 80 shows, you're definitely like, I see the holes here. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely definitely see the weaknesses. There's a couple of things where I'm selling some writing that maybe could have punched up on performance. Um, But there's like, but, you know, I I definitely like, yesterday you saw, I walked off stage and I was just like, I feel that I represented what I can do as best as I did, as best as I could do it. 
but you, I think that's the thing. Like maybe it's like that for everybody. Whenever you get into a thing, you don't get into it because you want to be the like three star guy. Like nobody gets into music and is like, I hope I make a song that people go, yeah. <laughs> like nobody, you get into music, you yeah. start playing the guitar because you're like, I, I, I want to fucking do it. I want to do Electric Ladyland. Yeah. I want to, I, I want, you know, I, I, I want to sing like Nina Simone. You, you don't get into it being like, I want to sing like someone, the people who their voice and go, yeah, I get, yeah. Like you, 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 so your your yeah. your yardstick in a way it's it, it's insane because your yardstick is I think I want to do something and also there's such fundamental arrogance at work at the core of that the idea that I could think that I would could do something as good as Richard Pryor is to me evidence of an absurd and inflated ego right uh, but. You know, and, but the, so the, it's like everything is like a push and pull. Like you sort of, I, I have, I hate myself, but also I secretly think I'm amazing. <laughs> and that's like. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like it. So I look again, I'm, we're going to run out of time and I've got so many things to ask you. Well, I want to, I want to ask you about the world. So this will be quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> When you look at the world, obviously, you know, particularly for people who are, well, I'm, I'm 48 years old, but you said you were 37 years old. So you are of an age where realistically, you know, the pandemic was the first major worldwide event that affected everybody that you've lived through, yeah. realistically. Like when you look at the world now and where we're at, what, what is your general feeling? Fucked, isn't it? <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, like... I'm sort of trying to trace the, like, uh, sort of arc of it, you know, because uh, the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall was supposed to be the end of history. You know, that was supposed to be the the ultimate victory of liberal democracy over the forces of totalitarianism, right? And then you this kind of consensus builds that actually a key part of that was free market economics. And then, you know, and then kind of this thing happens where suddenly planes are flying into buildings and you're like, ah, there may be a sequel to this history. And then, you know, and then in 2008, so the only thing I would say in terms of the pandemic is, you're right, it's the first thing that happened to my generation that it's like affected the entire world. But that that's part of the problem is actually 2008 happened to all of us. We just didn't realise it was happening to all of us. And the, this, the, the problem with 2008 is that it was a crisis of free market deregulated capitalism, but it was never presented as that. And it's been repackaged and missold as a crisis of profligate governments wasting people's money. And yeah, we did spend a fuck of a lot of money bailing out the fucking banking sector that had shivved us, right? That's what, that's basically what 2008 is. And that's the fundamental lie. Uh, there's two fundamental lies at the core of what's happened in the last 21 years. One is that you can fight a war against terrorism. And the other, that 2008 was a crisis of public spending. And as such, it can, is used to justify cutting public spending and cutting the state back to the bone in uh, pursuit of reducing the deficit because household incomes are equated with governmental incomes, even though they're entirely separate fucking things. And so... Where we are at right now 
is a combination of... In, the thing that makes me feel good is that we're actually pretty... It compared to 1929, 12 years after 1929, we're doing okay. But that, and that's the way that you have to look at it. The, what happened in 2008 was as bad a financial crisis as what happened in 29. But 29 provoked the New Deal. It provoked uh, in the UK um, the foundation of the welfare state, the National Health Service. But 2008, unfortunately, was not met with that response. And that opens the door for the far right. And that's where we have got to. And the, uh, you know, it, it, it pushed people further and further to the right because the, right, the far right will always exploit an economic catastrophe, right? And so the problem is that all these free market capitalists who were supposed to be about liberalising the world, it turns out they don't give a fuck about liberalising the world. They will support despotic regimes as long as they don't have to pay their basic amount of tax. So that, I think, is where we have sort of ended up and then the pandemic comes along and it's this catastrophe and it exposes a lot of these charlatans for the charlatans that it exposes donald trump it exposes boris johnson it exposes scomo it it exposes no no he nailed it (laughs) he was doing five different jobs What, what more can a man do His cabinet meetings during the pandemic must have been like Eddie Murphy and the Nutty Professor. He put on the different hats, different glasses, down in the Shire, having a great time. Have we we done the minutes, Mr Chairman? Uh, Yes, we have, Mr Chairman. (laughs) But it sort of exposed... So the challenge now is to learn the proper lessons of what's going on. And, we, you know... We're also faced with this whole thing of like, oh, the weather is trying to murder us. Mm. <laughs> so we're at this kind of tipping yeah. point, and the optimist in me feels that it could tip into a more positive thing. Because ultimately, what we learned from the pandemic was like, we got to pay these fucking key workers, man. And I don't just mean like doctors and nurses, but of course I do mean doctors and nurses, but I also mean like people who work mm. in shops. Because it turns out you can live without comedians, but you can't live without groceries, right? <laughs> And train drivers and bus drivers and pe- people we that have been suddenly understood what essential meant. Yeah, we ser- completely we understood what essential meant, and you know it's and also there's this climate crisis. So it's like, can you reshape the world to respond to these crises, or are you going to allow it to be engulfed by these crises? Because there are people like that fucking peyote adult slab of meat. Elon Musk, who were like, <laughs> I was like Joe Rogan. Oh no, Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Which one? It could be any of them. It could be any of them. Oh. They have like they they microdose, uh, uh, I believe. Uh, but all the microdosing seems to lead them to the conclusion of is I should pay less tax and be able to go to space. Like those people, they are not your leaders. Those are not your leaders, right? You, you, you know, you, 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 we can either follow Greta Thunberg or Joe Rogan. And if there's a choice between those two, put me in the Greta line for fuck's sake. Because, you know, that, there are people who are actually trying to come up with a response for the crises that's going on. And there are other people who are trying to exploit it. And the tipping point is, do we go for exploitation or solution? Mm. No, we're fine here because the floods have put out the bushfires. <laughs> so, 
We are desperately running out of time and I, I wish that we had more time because I could just keep talking to you and I have so many things I'd rather... I, I always ask people at the end of the show, uh, this is such a big question with a minute 20 to go, <laughs> uh, what do you think happens when we die? I mean, listen, I, I grew up uh, Hindu, though my grandfather converted to Christianity... Uh, so I've grown up with a lot of different religion in my house. And certainly I've grown up with like a, a sense that you have to tolerate other people's religious beliefs and engage with them. And you, but if someone has no religious belief, you also have to respect that. And so I, I don't really know what, um, you know, what what happens when, when you die. And there's a part of me that thinks, well, you become energy and, like, you bec- you give yourself to the earth and then you help the earth grow. And then there's another part of me that's like, fucking hell, what, are you, what, are you, what, what were you just smoking, you <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow goop hippie? <laughs> um, but there's, like, I do think that there is, like, this thing where, like, if you can just leave some kind of positive legacy. And that doesn't mean, like, some body of work that people might... If you can just do some, like, something nice for people. I just saw a really beautiful film called Living, which is a remake of a Kurosawa movie called Ikiru, which is about a kind of civil servant uh, who gets a terminal cancer diagnosis and realises he's kind of wasted his life and he becomes obsessed with this idea that he's going to finish a playground for some children. And, like, the, it, I, I found it so overwhelmingly moving because you realise that, like, whatever, however big it is, if you can leave something positive, then that's what happens to you after you die. You become the sum total of your, the efforts of your life and you leave that legacy to the world. That's amazing and that's a really nice uh, <laughs> note to finish on. Could you please join me in thanking Nish Kumar. Thank you so much for coming out to the show tonight. I'm here again tomorrow night with Vidas if you want to come along, but uh, thank you very much. Good night. <laughs>